I will have the horrible war between Russia and Ukraine settled, and we'll do it quickly. The commitment of the United States to our NATO alliance and Article 5 is rock solid. International humanitarian law must be respected. Hi, everybody, uh, and welcome back to the third episode of International Crisis Group's podcast, Ripple Effect. The podcast is an extended examination of the November 2024 presidential election in the United States and its impact on the rest of the world. My name is Michael Hanna, and I'm the U.S. Program Director at Crisis Group, uh, and I'm again joined by my colleague and co-host, Steve Pomper, our Chief of Policy. Our first two episodes offered some contrasting views on the foreign policy issues most likely to play a part in the campaign. Uh, in this episode, we're going to shift gears a bit, and we're going to zoom in on the legal backdrop to this election, which is frankly unprecedented with numerous legal actions, prosecutions, civil trials, efforts at disqualification, um, focused on the former president and uh, presumptive Republican nominee, Donald Trump. Yeah. Hey, Michael, uh, that's exactly right. And to help us make sense of a pretty complicated picture and how this all might affect the election, we're delighted to have with us today Ambassador Norman Eisen, who is a senior fellow in governance studies at Brookings Institution and an expert on law, ethics, and anti-corruption. He has served in a variety of government roles, most recently as the special counsel to the House Judiciary Committee from 2019 to 2020 for the impeachment and trial of then-President Trump. Rolling back the tape, uh, from January 2009 to January 2011, Ambassador Eisen worked in the White House, the Obama White House, as special counsel and special assistant to the president for ethics and government reform. He then went on to serve as the US ambassador, US ambassador, excuse me, to the Czech Republic from 2011 to 2014. He's the author of numerous books, has ex offered extensive commentary on the various cases against Donald Trump, including in a New York Times monthly column, the latest edition of which is out this morning, if I understand correctly, in the print edition. So, Norm, welcome to the show. It's really a pleasure to have you. Thank you, Steve. So great to be with you. Hi, Michael. So I guess I'll kick things off with a first question, which is sort of a roadmap question. Um, our mission here on Ripple Effect is to try and make the U.S. election and its international implications clearer to both a domestic and a broader global audience. Uh, but frankly, the legal activity around the former president is difficult to keep track of. Um, I think that's probably the case for U.S. listeners as well as those overseas, and even for those with law degrees like Michael and myself. So I wonder if you could maybe start by giving us a roadmap of the various criminal and civil trials that are involving uh, former President Trump. By our count, there are four criminal proceedings several state-led efforts to kick him off the ballot on constitutional grounds, and several strands of civil litigation, some of which have already resulted in eye-popping damage awards. Are those the right buckets to be thinking in? They are the right buckets, Steve. It is challenging to um, make sense of it all and not to view it just as legal actions heaped in three piles. The way I like to think about the lay of the land to make sense of the landscape is 
to understand that Donald Trump's entire 50-year business career was dogged by allegations of illegality and fraud. And he's now been found uh, to have conducted his business in the New York Attorney General's civil action against him with a systematic and comprehensive fraudulent way of doing operations spanning a period of years. He took that fraud, business fraud, and adapted it allegedly to the way he did politics. And that explains the through line of the most important criminal cases, because he's going to go to trial. The first of the criminal trials is the Alvin Bragg matter about the 2016 election. And in my view, it's my new Times column, that was an election fraud and an election interference case. What Donald Trump is accused of doing there is corrupting 2016 election in the very last days by making hush money payments to cover up a damaging scandal that could have cost him that election. Extremely close election. Coming on the heels of Access Hollywood, another scandal could have been fatal in a contest decided by 80,000 votes across three states. Just 40,000 women and men would have had to swing their votes. So he made those payments and then 34 alleged felonies covering up those payments in the books and records of the Trump org. And he got away with it. The, um, the Alvin Bragg case, Alvin Bragg refers to the district attorney, right, who is bringing a, a criminal action against Donald Trump in New York. And this was, I believe, the very first of the criminal cases to get moving. And it's interesting um, because it's a state case. It's a state criminal case, which means that it's beyond the capacity of any president to pardon including if President Trump were to be reelected. So there's a lot of focus on it for that, among other reasons. I just want to make sure to get that context in. And You mean Alvin Bragg? Alvin Bragg's name is not a household word all over the world where they're listening to this podcast. It will now be. Manhattan DA Alvin Bragg, a very experienced federal and state prosecutor um, who's done a very good job in seeing this case through. So that 2016 election interference, making those payments to block revelation of a scandal, and then covering them up, 34 serious felony violations in New York. They carry jail time if convicted, possible jail time. I think Trump, if convicted, is likely to get a jail sentence. So you have the first chapter of Trump's really entire professional life that has been revealed to be a fraud by Judge Ngoron, who oversaw the New York Attorney General's civil fraud case and that massive judgment that with interest is uh, $435 million and interest accumulating by the day. Then you have chapter two, which is the 2016, he applied that fraud at the end of the election to win the election and cover it up. And so far, he's gotten away with it. Certainly, he seemed to have gotten off scot-free. So 2020, he went large 
with his election fraud, and that is the federal case brought by special counsel Jack Smith for the uh, attempted coup uh, for the listeners of ICG's podcast. They know what an autogolpe is, uh, an effort to remain in office, a self-coup rather than using a coup to evict an office holder. That's 2020. That's special counsel Jack Smith. In fact, he's charged the case as, among other things, uh, a fraud against the United States. What could be a bigger fraud against democracy than losing an election and claiming you won, blocking, trying to, the rightful winner so that you can stay in office? And then, Steve, you were asking about the Bragg case being a state case, so it's insulated from self-pardon. The 2020 election interference didn't only stimulate the federal Jack Smith case that's in D.C., but there's a state effort that is going on in Georgia led by Fannie Willis. There's been some controversy around that prosecution lately, I think wrongly, because she was dating one of the prosecutors. Kissing is not against the law among prosecutors uh, in the United States. There's been a lot of misunderstanding of these allegations. Anyhow, that's another state case, like the Alvin Bragg one in New York. That's a case in Georgia. They're both, both Bragg and Willis are election interference cases, Bragg for 2016, Willis for 2020. So there's two very substantial cases that Trump can't pardon his way out of. That's the trajectory of Trump's fraud from business fraud to serious election fraud to catastrophic election fraud in 2020 when Trump got away with all of the earlier stuff that he's now being held accountable for. And just as one addendum to all of that, there's one last fraud that Jack Smith is pursuing, although it's expressed in different legal terms, and that is Trump defrauding the federal government by purloining and hanging on to highly classified documents. So that is, uh, uh, we charge that as uh, retention of national security information wrongly. Uh, Unfortunately, that case, unlike the other three, has a very, very bad judge, a last-minute Trump appointee, a midnight appointee that was rushed through at the end of the Trump administration, Eileen Cannon, and that document theft case is probably not going to go to trial in 2024. All the other three cases are in play for 2024, and I think two out of the three will go to trial. I think there's room for two trials this year, the Bragg state case in New York, plus either the federal case uh, for 2020 or the state case. That's the lay of the land. So can I just on that timing issue and um, ask a follow-up question? Because I think one obvious question that hangs in a lot of listeners' mind must be, what does all this mean for the election itself? The damage awards that you spoke of, Judge Engeron's award, and there's another award as well, could obviously hurt Trump's ability to finance his own campaign. The constitutional litigation that we haven't yet spoken about, but where states are trying to kick him off the ballot for having led an insurrection um, would have obvious implications, although it sounds like that may not go anywhere. 
the Supreme Court is looking at that one right now, if I'm not mistaken. And then I think probably most consequential is there's a sizable number of Americans who say that a felony conviction in one of the three cases that you think might go to trial this year could sway their vote, that they might actually flip from Trump to Biden if there were a conviction. And I, so I just wanted to check, is that your understanding as well? And can you tell us where you think the convergence of the legal and the electoral calendar is most likely? In a prior Times guest essay, I wrote with two of our most distinguished polling and opinion research scholars here in the U.S. about the electoral impacts of all this. Where is it going? The polls fluctuate on Biden and Trump with most polls showing that voters aren't fully paying attention yet. Trump seems to enjoy a very slight lead. There's a new poll I just saw the this morning from Kinnipiac. It's a good pollster. It tends to have a slight pro-Biden tilt, which has Biden up by four points nationally. But when Trump is convicted and sentenced in these polls, and we looked at dozens of them over the entire course of 2023, the effect on the election outcome for Trump is cataclysmic. For example, in the big New York Times-Siena poll of the swing states that garnered so much attention towards the end of the year, um, Trump was up on average four points, five points, sorry, on average five points across the six states that are likely to decide the election where uh, the margins uh, tend to be very close. When Trump is convicted and sentenced and the individuals, the voters polled are presented with that fact, the margin swings to plus nine Biden, a 14 point swing. It's even more pronounced among uh, key voting blocks. Among youth voters, it's over 30-point swing if and when Trump is convicted and sentenced. So uh, that is the bottom line. We're going to be looking to these uh, court proceedings, all of us as Americans, not as they are now, accused or alleged crime, but uh, for decisions by a jury of our peers, of voters' peers, folks like them, was there a crime or not? And that seems to be when, when the electoral impacts are felt. So assuming the trials go, uh, they will have a very substantial effect. Norm, if I could, because just picking up on the idea that these trials could have a substantial political effect, I mean, obviously, then the political context could could hardly be more consequential. And of course, it's unfolding in this highly polarized environment uh, here in the United States. It has, in effect, led to some criticism that these various legal proceedings are inherently political intent in their intent. And you know, 
Harvard Law professor Jack Goldsmith, a Republican, but also a, a pretty frequent Trump critic, he's argued that, that Jack Smith, the special counsel uh, who's leading the DOJ prosecutorial efforts in the two federal cases, is acting with basically specific political goals tied to the electoral calendar. And his argument is that that violates uh, Department of Justice rules. Um, and of course, you're arguing that, in fact, these these proceedings are highly consequential in, in electoral terms. Do you think this line of criticism uh, makes sense? Do you think that you know, the others have, have argued that, uh, that voters should have a choice here and that this is an effort to, to make an, un, an end run effectively around democratic process? Do you think any of that is valid criticism? I take the strongest exception to my smart, but in this case, deeply wrong colleague, Jack Goldsmith, who's the co-founder of Brookings Lawfare Project. The notion that the American people are not entitled to a speedy adjudication of this case is abhorrent. The backdrop against which these judgments on timing have to be made is uh, federal law, and that includes the Speedy Trial Act. Congress has said we should decide criminal cases quickly. That is not about the rights of the defendants in those cases to have fast answers, although that factors in. It's about the public interest in the speedy resolution of criminal trials. So uh, Goldsmith is not arguing that the Speedy Trial Act is unconstitutional. And the same factors that apply in any federal criminal case to mandate as fast a resolution of the matter as is consistent with due process apply here even more strongly. What could be more important to the public interest than knowing if an individual who's accused of abusing the powers of the Oval Office to wrongly seek power, as dangerous a criminal conspiracy as ever existed in American history, and that same individual is attempting to obtain those powers again, we need to know what a jury of Americans, his peers and our peers, say about what happened. There's no reason to make an exception for this case against that backdrop. The actual text that Goldsmith points to the DOJ policy and practices say no such thing. Trials of uh, political figures have run up to uh, election, uh, the, the, the eve of the election, as in Senator, Senator Ted Stevens' corruption trial when he was running for re-election. So um, I understand the impulse to be totally neutral to treat this case as if Trump weren't running, what would the time frame be? 
But even then, with these unresolved acts, Trump still not having faced accountability for the 2016 wrongdoing and the impunity that provided, uh, it's an invitation to more wrongdoing if we stall this case further. And not just by Trump, but it's open season that's being declared on American electoral processes and so on our democracy. We must have speed. The law demands it. It's fully consistent with departmental policy, the functioning of the justice system, and just common sense. As a touch of, of background, uh, the the thing that sparked Goldsmith's criticism was uh, this this current appeal in front of the Supreme Court related to Trump's claim of absolute immunity, and of course that specific issue is now pending uh, before the court. Um, can you just give us a few thoughts about the court's options in terms of what next? Well, the um, case that's before the Supreme Court. Uh, the specific issue that's before the Supreme Court is Donald Trump's claim that uh, a president can commit the most outrageous crimes from the Oval Office using government power. And unless he's impeached and removed, which has never happened in over uh, 240 years of American constitutional almost 240 years of American constitutional history. There's nothing that you can do about it. And the famous example came from the argument in the D.C. Circuit, short of impeachment, if you ordered SEAL Team 6 to go out and assassinate your political opponent, is there nothing that could be done about that? They asked that of Trump's lawyer. And the answer was, yes, there's nothing that can be done about that. So that argument can't be right. And that argument is not going to succeed at the Supreme Court, in part because if the Supreme Court endorses that and Trump returns to power, he might send SEAL Team 6 for them if he doesn't like their decisions. He's already kvetched about some of the people on that court who he put there, not resolving cases about him to his satisfaction. So they're not going to endorse that. The only question is when. Are they going to handle it on an expedited fashion or are they going to drag their heels? There is some evidence of both. They rejected a prior attempt to go fast that Jack Smith made. He tried to go straight to them and skip the intermediate appeals, and they didn't like that. So that suggests they don't want to go fast. But they scheduled the briefing on his renewed motion for a stay pretty quickly. They gave a week for the briefing in this round at the Supreme Court that we're now in. That one-week deadline has passed. And we're waiting any day. I, you know, I don't think it will have to wait too long to find out, are they going to take the road of extreme speed? They can decide things in days, like in the Bush v. Gore 
2000 election controversy? Will they take a medium speed, fast but medium, like U.S. v. Nixon, or another case, Steve, that you alluded to, the uh, 14th Amendment case from Colorado that's trying to disqualify Trump right now, an organization that I co-founded has been the lead in pushing that case. Um, Will they do medium or will they do the normal and slow process, which would not give us a decision until the summer, which might or might not be too late to get this case to trial in 2024. The Georgia case is the backup plan, however. So, you know, all accountability does not rise or fall on the federal uh, election case as the companion piece to the 2016 election case that DA Alvin Bragg has in Manhattan. So if I can just play the devil's advocate a little bit here, Norm, I think one question I've had is whether all four of these cases don't have slightly wobbly legs. So you have the New York case, which I think has been criticized because it's not really clear that the underlying state charge, which is falsification of, of business documents, is more than a misdemeanor. And the prosecutor has had to make a couple of moves to try and turn it into a, a felony count. And also, I think in the view of the American public, a New York jury, which New York being a fairly liberal jurisdiction, a conviction from a New York jury may not have the same weight as, as some of the other potential convictions that we're talking about. So you've got New York in that bucket. Then you have Georgia, where the issue isn't just a romance between the prosecutor and and one of the people who she hired to bring in uh, or brought in to help with the case, but also the idea that some of the that some of the money that may have gone to that helper was then used to buy the two of them vacations and things like that. There's just a whiff of impropriety around it. Um, and then you have the case that's uh, that we were just talking about, the January 6th case, um, where you've got noted scholars casting aspersions on the push to judgment, whether that's right or wrong, you know, we just had a debate about it, but certainly that's going to lodge in the public's mind as a potential issue. And then you have the documents, the classified documents case at Mar-a-Lago, where you have a judge who's clearly not interested in moving this before the election. So, um, one may agree or disagree, but it does lead me to wonder whether or not those who would like to see Joe Biden prevail in this election are hoping that legal proceedings are going to help deliver him a victory, may be overweighting <laughs> uh, or overhoping uh, for what those legal cases are going to provide. Because there seems like there's a lot of legal contingency uh, and other contingency that could keep them from, from delivering the election for him. What do you think about that? I think that we have learned, Steve, that it's not easy to prosecute Donald Trump. And um, he sometimes skillfully and with the help of outstanding counsel, including my former criminal law colleague, John Loro, who's one of his lead lawyers, We practiced criminal law together as defense lawyers. And sometimes clumsily, with the help of, you know, if you can call it that, with lawyers like that who needs enemies, the help of his incompetent and bumbling 
counsel like Alina Haba. Thankfully, I've never had anything to do with her. Trump has effectively complicated the path towards accountability. I reject the criticisms of the cases, but I recognize the challenges that Trump's sometimes very effective demagoguery and the checks and balances that are a part of the American judicial system were supposed to test every criminal case. I was a criminal defense lawyer. And, um, you know, we take great pride in, since John Adams represented the British redcoats in the revolutionary era, representing the unpopular, the hated, and putting the government to its proof. I can tell you my former colleague, John Lauro, is certainly committed to that. That being said, the uh, I'll just do the cases. I'll just address each of the principal critiques of the cases uh, in order. The 2016 case is not um, legally defective. All of the arguments about the invalidity of using New York's books and records felony statute that gave rise to the 34 counts have been tested by the courts. Trump tried, you know, there was a controversy when the case was filed. Again, I wrote in the Times saying it was a good case, as we say in criminal law parlance in the United States, a righteous case. And that all these arguments would fail about, oh, can you prosecute a federal wrongdoing by presidential candidate interference in an election under New York state law? Is it what we call preempted, knocked out by federal interests? All failed. Trump's arguments were so weak that they were rejected by uh, a federal judge in New York. And then Trump dropped his appeal. Trump just lost five motions to dismiss back in state court before Judge Mershon. That is a strong case. It's going to withstand appeal. I think it's very likely that Donald Trump is convicted, and it is likely that he is sentenced to a term of incarceration. Coming next to the um, Fonnie Willis, I'll do the other state case, the Fonnie Willis case. You know, there has been this fuss and about her relationship with her fellow prosecutor, that's been the... But as I said earlier, that is not a cause for disqualification under Georgia law at all. Kissing. Kissing is not a crime uh, in Georgia. Um, Even when two prosecutors do it, even when one hires the other or one gives gifts to the other, Fannie Willis went to court, absolutely demolished these arguments. She was so effective. Probably the most concerning there was, you know, was their financial benefits. But she said, we went Dutch. We split. We roughly split as couples do. Anybody seeing that fierce and and fiercely independent woman on the stand couldn't doubt that she wouldn't let him pay. A man is not a plan, famously. That's like a new new phrase that she's introduced into the lexicon. Besides, 
In Georgia, you can't get disqualification except for things like if a prosecutor fabricated evidence. If she was going out with a witness and caused that witness to testify falsely, that would be one thing. Or if she had uh, falsified uh, the uh, uh, tapes of Trump talking using AI. But we all heard the tape of Trump on January 2nd, 2021. I just want to find 11,780 votes, he said. That's something that an Orban or an Erdogan might privately say, not an American president. That election was signed, sealed, counted, recounted, certified, and over. You can't reopen the books. There were no 11,780 votes in Georgia, and he knew it. Then the two federal cases, you know, the he's not immune in the Smith case. Smith is a apolitical, longtime government prosecutor, and I just don't buy the various things that are said about the Smith case. And Smith is going to defeat Trump on the principal legal objection of immunity. Uh, and then you have the Mar-a-Lago case. That's the slam dunkiest of them all. Uh, unfortunately, that case probably won't make it to trial in 2024. There's room for two trials in 2024. Bragg is going to trial March 25th. That case will run through, uh, likely through April and May. Judge Cannon on that fourth case, documents case, has it set for trial in May at the moment. If she surprises the observers and actually wants to take that case to trial in 2024, there's room to do it. After Bragg finishes, she can set it for June or even July. And then if she doesn't, we'll see what happens with the federal case for 2020 election interference and with the Fannie Willis case. Both of them could be ready to go in 2024. I think it's more likely than not that we get two cases this year. So, Norm, we've mentioned disqualification a few times, um, and just to to make clear for our, for our listeners, what what exactly is that effort? And it's happening in state courts, and now is rising to to the Supreme Court for review. Maybe just a, a quick recap of what that is all about. So, we have this trajectory of business fraud becoming electoral fraud, allegedly in 2016, and exploding into a uh, conspiracy to defraud the United States in 2020. We have a side issue related to that, which is part of what Trump is accused of in 2020 is entanglement in the insurrection of January 6th. That's the payoff for, and it's included in Jack Smith's prosecution, that's the terminus of his 2020 electoral fraud efforts. Under the Constitution, you can't uh, hold office if you engage in insurrection and a group of private plaintiffs, including crew, Citizens for Responsibility and Ethics in Washington, a watchdog that I founded 20 years ago, proudly served on the board. Uh, They're friends. I'm no longer formally affiliated with them. They brought an action to disqualify Trump under the constitutional provision that says Insurrectionists are not allowed to hold office. It's the 14th Amendment of our Constitution, Section 3. That And Trump was knocked off the ballot by the Colorado Supreme Court 
which found he should be disqualified. That's now in the United States Supreme Court. They disagree, but it was a noble effort. Among other things, it gives the United States Supreme Court a baby to split. They can reject immunity for Trump and deny him, and they can say, but he's not disqualified and and give him a cookie. So even if they don't win, they won't win. Uh, It's clear from the bench questioning they don't have the votes. Wrongly, I disagree with it. But, you know, I disagree with the Supreme Court all the time. But it does have the advantage of allowing some baby splitting at the court. So, Norm, we're short on time. So I'm going to cut to a question that every crisis group podcast has to look at, which is how some of these events and trends that we're talking about could fuel the potential for political violence. I guess I'm wondering whether you have thought through, particularly as we draw closer to the election, what it could look like if a court comes down with the decision that one or the other side in the electoral contest seem, thinks is illegitimate or sees as potentially rigging the vote, and whether or not it could actually touch off a wave of protests and people into the street, that kind of thing. Have you thought that through, and and should we worry about that? My next organization that I started after Crew, that I now proudly serve as the executive chair of, is dedicated to analyzing that question and mitigating and addressing the risk. It's called the States United Democracy Center, and preventing political violence is one of the three pillars of this organization that supports uh, pro-democracy state officials, irrespective of party, as they confront uh, uh, election denial, election sabotage, and election violence. In the era of Trump, the risk of violent action in an already excessively violent and overly armed nation like ours is an ever-present threat. We saw that erupt on January 6th. We've seen more isolated, sporadic episodes of violence associated with politics in the period since. And uh, it's a risk. I think that we have been working hard as a nation To mitigate that, you saw very good security around the four criminal indictments of Trump, for example. That was a flashpoint. And um, government, federal, state, and local government, law enforcement, and civil society organizations like ours uh, need to continue to work together to address that. It is a risk. I do think that the awareness helps Uh, manage it. And fortunately, we have not seen a recurrence of the horror of January 6th on a large scale since that day. Just a one minute answer to this one, Norm, um, if you can. Um, It's not just that there's legal proceedings against Trump. There are also legal proceedings against Joe Biden and his son, Hunter. People have sort of forgotten about that to some extent, that there had been a special counsel appointed to look into the president's retention of classified documents at various spots um, 
non-governmental spots when he left office, Merrick Garland had appointed a special counsel who delivered a report not recommending that the president be prosecuted, but taking a few shots at the president's age um, and capacity. Are there other shoes that might drop that, you know, that we should be looking at on the other side of the ledger? The Joe Biden investigations, which have uncovered no wrongdoing so far, are pure tit for tat, but they're complex enough that we could do a whole podcast on that alone, particularly if we included the investigation and prosecution of his son, Hunter, who I'm convinced would have gotten, you know, quiet plea deal and diversion for his gun and tax charges if he had any other name and any other dad uh, in America. I thought the the um, Robert Hur special counsel investigation of Biden was legitimate, that Biden should not have handled those documents the way he did, but there were a few free-floating, untethered editorial lines, particularly in the introduction to the special counsel report that were just gratuitous digs, violates DOJ policy to do that with an uncharged individual. And, uh, you know, that, for example, there was no need to say Joe Biden is a uh, well-meaning, elderly man with a poor memory. That was just like to create a campaign slogan. And it had the desired effect. That was wrong. Uh, There was confusion created in the introduction to that document about whether Biden willfully uh, held these documents. There was a very poorly phrased sentence that was taken out of context. If you read the whole report, it's clear there's no evidence of willful mishandling of classified materials. And what Biden did was much less egregious than many other presidents. Reagan, who had a diary of every day and every hour of his time in office, laden volumes, laden with classified information, and everybody knew it. Nobody did anything. So uh, there's nothing to the Biden investigations. And I think Hunter did wrong, but is being uh, unfairly treated by a different standard because he's the president's son. So just to, to wrap up, um, and we'll ask you maybe to put your diplomatic hat on for a second. Do you have a sense of how, how it's being perceived abroad, how it's understood? Do you think this is a picture of a country trying to uphold rule of law or perhaps undue interference in electoral politics? Maybe that breaks down in terms of, of the political views of those observing from abroad. But do you have any advice for U.S. partners about how they should proceed in this uh, fraught legal environment? Well, I hope they'll listen to this podcast because guided by your occasional reminders to kiss, as we uh, sometimes say here, keep it simple, stupid. We have unpacked this trajectory of business fraud, 2016 election fraud, and then the big kahuna when Trump got away with that long pattern of fraud of the 2020 fraud and election interference. I think that ours is a story of democratic accountability. And I think that our international partners um, should 
take a measure of comfort and reassurance and even a page from our book in um, using the rule of law system to hold wrongdoers uh, in office, those who would assault democracy using official powers accountable. They can't help but be anxious about the same uncertainties and the messiness and slowness and complexity of it all because of what it says about the imperfections, like all human systems, of a rule of law system. Particularly one, all American systems are built with a bias towards checking and balancing official power. And we see how that can be deployed in these cases. And then, of course, there's another layer in that mixed cocktail of democratic accountability and rule of law uncertainty. There's another ingredient, and that is a president who seems fonder of our dictatorial adversaries, killers like um, Xi and, and Putin and the North Koreans than he is of our allies. That's the payoff if accountability doesn't work, at least a possible payoff. So a powerful dose of uncertainty in there. And I can understand why uh, sipping on that cocktail on a daily basis would uh, create some queasy tummies. But uh, I'll just leave you with the thought that uh, uh, I think we will see one and likely two criminal trials that they will represent powerful democratic accountability, a reminder that no one is above the law, and the American people will respond in kind. That's not just my hope. That's backed by the data that I wrote about in the Times. And now we just have to uh, brace ourselves for what's going to be a very eventful, uncertain, uh, and consequential year, one of the most consequential in the long almost 240-year history of our democracy. Norm, thank you so much for helping us unpack this tangle. Um, we may ask you to rejoin us at some point uh, down the course of the year as, as things continue to develop because very few people can explain it as well as you can. We really appreciate it. With pleasure. Thanks, Steve. Thanks, Michael. And thanks to ICG for all the great things you do. Thanks. Uh, Steve, a lot to process. It's a pretty complex picture, as we've noted many times. Um, I appreciate the succinct categorization and breakdown of, of the variety of legal actions that we're witnessing. Yeah, um, I, I guess I'm still a little skeptical about the power of these cases to uh, really shape the direction of this election. But I guess that could depend on you know, how far and how fast they go um, in a year when there's going to be a lot going on. So we'll just have to see. Yeah. And, and very confident that at least one and perhaps two of these trials is is going to take place, which I, I can't, I can hardly imagine what that would look like in the midst of a presidential campaign. Uh, but 
that might be our near-term future. So just to wrap up, I just wanted to thank our listeners for joining us once again. Um, there were a variety of, uh, of pieces and authors and noted throughout the podcast, and we will uh, include links to all of those in the material for the podcast. We hope you'll come back next month uh, when we come back for our fourth episode. Thank you. Thanks so much. 